Hey climbers, welcome back to Climb by VSC, a weekly show about building and scaling startups in the world of climate innovation. My name is Jacob Poor, general partner of VSC Ventures and co-host of Climb. Every week, I or a member of our VSC team will speak with a pioneer in the climate tech world about emerging technologies and novel ideas that will turn the tide on climate change. We've all heard enough of the doom and gloom. It's time for stories of purpose-driven innovation that lead to sustainable, positive change. As always, I'm so happy that you've decided to join us. Now let's climb. Welcome to another episode of the Climb Podcast from VSC Ventures, where we bring on company builders uh, and folks that are helping scale businesses and climate technology. Today, very excited to have on Ian Roundtree, founder of Cantos, uh, an amazing and important venture firm that's investing in um, some of the most complicated and complex uh, businesses and technologies out there to solve some of our biggest problems. Uh, I think Ian can say it better to, than I would, but I do want to um, introduce him. I, I had a chance to get to have dinner with him about a month ago. Uh, excited about um, what you're excited about, Ian, and excited to share that uh, with our community. So with that, um, thanks for joining and um, looking forward to uh, getting into it. Yeah, I'm excited. Awesome. So let's start with uh, your background. Um so we have an interesting background to get to Cantos. Um, I, I've seen just from your background <laughs> in really, I guess my question is, how did you get from like SoFi, uh, which I, it's sort of fintech and financing into uh, deciding to go into Cantos? And again, maybe I missed something as I was looking through LinkedIn, but would love to also just understand that sort of your career trajectory and maybe even if it started before so far. Yeah, no, definitely. There was, um, my background is sort of nonsensical and secure, circuitous. And if you looked at my LinkedIn, you'd be like, what? This guy's a deep tech VC? Like, what's going on here? And honestly, it didn't all make sense to me at the time. I think some things aren't, a lot of things aren't apparent until after the fact, right? And the, the through line for me was always trying to find my place in the world um, in, in like that kind of gestalt sense. Like I... Um, I wanted to do good in the world. I didn't necessarily know the best way for me to do that. And I studied political science, you know, started pre-med, then thought maybe I'd work in public health or something. Um, went and worked for a nonprofit in Central America after school, then went into healthcare consulting when I got in, got interested in sort of business as a way to affect change in the world. I was really interested in, in impact investing and social entrepreneurship, um, had always been kind of a sci-fi nut, uh, future forward person given, given my mindset. And so, um, in 2012, quit my consulting job, moved out to San Francisco, uh, was one of the early employees at SoFi on their capital markets team. Also did some BD marketing, but I was sort of the in-house like banking analyst, um, and did some fundraising for their student loans at the time, which is when I got interested in investing and sort of brokering capital with innovation. Um, and, Set my sights on business school, couldn't get in. So my consolation prize was investing my savings in 11 startups, figuring I'd lose it all, but learn a lot and um, parlayed that after a couple more startup jobs into Cantos in 2016. Amazing. And so um, tell me about that experience with those first angel investments. Um, how many did you do? Uh what did you learn? Uh, what what got you to the point of, okay, I've you know you've seen enough that you want to start a fund? Yeah, I mean, I, I made eleven investments over. You know, this was kind of 20, 2013 to the beginning of twenty sixteen, and 
um, I mostly learned what I didn't know and what you can't know in the early days. And venture investing is, I think, more than any other asset class dealing with uncertainty. And, you know, I was, of course, overly confident initially. And I thought every company I invested in was going to go to the moon. And um, and I learned the power law, most of all, um, which is that, I mean, the, the way that those 11 investments played out was that one of them, within a few years, uh, I was able to sell in the private markets. Um, this company's not gone public or anything, but sold for 20 times my investment. And that was one of the larger ones. And so it returned kind of four times the total invested capital. Um and haven't seen anything from any of the rest. There's like a couple that are that are doing all right. But what I learned is essentially like y- you make 11 investments, only one really matters. And so thinking more probabilistically is probably the, the biggest hurdle that you get over, at least if you're coming from other asset classes where there's more risk aversion and you sort of have to like make sure that everything, the, the median investment is very good. Venture is fundamentally different. The probabilities are so skewed. How did you um, get that deal flow? I mean, if I look at, if I think about your job at SoFi, I, I wouldn't think that you're running into these kind of founders on a daily basis, but maybe I'm wrong. Like, how did, how did you, was it like just two different worlds you're living in day daytime and nighttime or like, how did you, how'd you do that? Or was it before that actually? I was young and single and had just moved to San Francisco and was I wanted to meet everyone who might be interesting and was going to happy hours and and dinners and, and, you know, weekend getaways. And, and, uh, the founders of SoFi had gone to four of the five had gone to Stanford business school. And so sometimes they'd have their friends over and their friends were, you know, starting companies. And, um, it was really happenstance. Um, and I don't know, maybe it was easier back then. Like, I mean, I was writing tiny checks, so it wasn't like the allocations mattered. It wasn't that competitive, but, um, and we can get into this, but it's certainly like from 2013 to 2017, that phase was when it felt like angel investing, starting your own small fund really dramatically popularized. Yeah. And that sort of changed how, how I was thinking about things. And then, you know, Kansas one was much broader in scope. I've, I've again, always been motivated by how do we do good in the world using technology, but it was, um, more broadly defined. I was okay with sort of adjacent, like bank shot impact type pitches. And over time, one of the reasons I got more interested in deep tech was that I felt like there there was a more direct line to impact when you're building stuff in the real world, but also because venture had gotten much more competitive and I knew that we'd benefit from some specialization. Yeah, makes sense. And now, um, so Cantos won. How big was the fund? Um, how many companies did you do out of it or are still doing out of it? Honestly, at the time, like I had run out of my savings and uh, I was working at a startup and we were pitching VCs, but you know, I was kind of realizing that I'd rather be on the investing side than at that startup and the the CEO and I had, you know, sort of difference of opinion of which which way the business was needed to go. Um and I was realizing as we were pitching all these VCs, like we literally, did, we did 80 pitches and I remember four of them fondly. And I always kind of like held VCs up on a pedestal. And I thought it was this like magical title that if you were a VC, you were automatically, you know, some genius uh, 
worthy of, uh, you know, tremendous respect. And that experience really disillusioned me about that. And I realized that, yeah, there was a lot of money in VC, but it was kind of hard to find people that had founder empathy and got back to you quickly and were, you know, smart and kind. And, um, I started talking to folks saying, look, I, I met a lot of VCs and founders. I'm pretty sure I could get the founders to take our money alongside, uh, instead of, or at least alongside most of these guys out there. Um, and that has changed too. I think enough people had that obvious realization that they're like, ah, VC kind of sucks. Like, let's go start a firm and be the VC that we wish we had when we were raising capital. Um, and I do think a lot of it has has really changed. Um, VCs are just nicer on average than they were when I got into it. Um, but that first fund, it was like, hey, I've I've demonstrated some success, you know, returning four times my angel portfolio, but I'm I'm out, you know, I'm out of my own money. And at the time I hadn't exited, that was on paper. So it's not like I could keep investing my own funds. And um I said, wouldn't it kind of be a shame for me to stop if presumably I'm only getting better at this? Um and I thought maybe I had raised like 2 million bucks and front load the fees and go drive for a lift while I waited for markups or something or get a different job. And that first fund, I actually, because I, I knew there was a reasonable chance that I wouldn't be able to raise another fund or I would have found out that I was, you know, bad at it. Then what I did is I only had management fees for three years because I kind of wanted an excuse to like, be able to move on and do something <laughs> different after three years. And, and still with like a, a net fee load of 6% in that first fund. And I even, I even had lower carry. Cause I was like, the only thing that matters is having money to, to invest. And like, I've only made 11 investments and one's okay. Like I need some advantage here. And so I dropped my carry dramatically dropped management fees and it still took a little over a year to raise four and a half million dollars. You're saying you met 80 VCs, four of them you remember. What were the four? Oh, I remember a lot of them. I remember four of them fondly. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, they were just like, they're these ridiculous experiences that any founders listening are going to like be grinning or laughing or cringing as I say this, because it'll be so familiar. Like we, we made the trek down to Sand Hill Road. God forbid they would leave, you know, they would drive up to the city to meet you. They had, you know, sort of sat in their crystal thrones and made you come to them. And we go down, you know, we take half our day to drive to Menlo. Um, and I live in San Francisco and I'd probably go to New York more than I go down. <laughs> um, so maybe I'm, uh, uh, um, you know, subject to this criticism now, but like, it was like this whole trek to get down there. And then we show up and we're all prepared. And this guy's sort of like, he's late to the meeting and he's flustered and he comes in and he's like, ah, oh, you know, flipping through his phone. And it's like, um, so, sorry guys, it's been a really busy day. Uh, r- remind me what you do again. And like, I wanted to, if we didn't need the money so badly, I would have walked out of the meeting. And I say that just to say like the bar is so, was so low. I'll co- I want to come back more to the investment philosophy, but I also want to talk about opportunity, right? So when you started Cantos One, it sounds like there was two major opportunities. One, there wasn't enough, there weren't enough good VCs that are helpful to founders at that time. And that Deep Tech probably was underfunded, if not funded at all. Um, so you had this like, uh, maybe this uh, personality superpower vis-a-vis the VC uh, culture then, but you also had this area of expert, you were going to go after an area which was risky and and had a lot of 
you know, depending on what part you look at sort of frontier tech, like whether it's cl climate tech had its downfall and the first version of it or other ones have had theirs in hardware, right? Not maybe not enterprise, but certainly consumer. Like, no, you I was, like, you're giving me too much credit. Like at the time I, the bar was literally, I don't suck. And, and like, I hadn't got, I hadn't gotten to deep tech yet. I was, I was trying to learn venture capital and, okay. you know, um, and there were some deep tech investors like, you know, Matt, Matt Arco coined the term deep tech or, or earlier than that. Um, and, and DCVC hadn't rebranded from data collective yet. They were still doing mostly AI, but they'd made a couple in deep tech investments. Um, it just wasn't like a thing yet. And I was trying to learn about investing. And so I was like, you know, listening to every 20 minute VC podcast and reading all the blogs and trying to meet everyone who was a VC to learn from them. And I was jotting all these notes. And now I look back at it and I'm like, I'm like laughing because I was asking like crappy VCs for advice and like taking it. And like, if you want to learn to play basketball, you don't watch high school games. You watch the best. You go watch like Jordan and Larry Bird and Steph Curry. Like, I, it was so it just didn't occur to me at the time that there was like stratification among VCs and like I don't I you know apply this to me if you're listening like you know take this with a heap of salt I think every tweet and interview that a VC does should come with their IRR so you can you know caveat what they're saying um, <laughs> and our unrealized IRR is something in the low 30s if it you know gives a little context but um, not liquid so take that with a huge asterisk um, and. <laughs> like now I kind of don't pay attention to anyone that hasn't worked at or doesn't work at benchmark or Sequoia. Like if you're trying to be a VC, don't listen to anyone else. Don't listen to me. Go like find interviews with Don Valentine and Mike Moritz and Doug Leone and like the, the founders and, and current GPs of benchmark. Like they are the only people you should listen to. And you realize when you listen to them that they do things a, a hell of a lot differently than most VCs. And sometimes it's super counterintuitive, but like that is what is required of building a business. Like as I got really interested in, um, in investing in businesses, I, I we can talk about this, but I, I like obsess over moats. Um, but, um, not understanding that at the time, I was just trying to be nicer and mm -hmm. that was a differentiator, but that eroded very quickly. And, um, you know, I started experimenting in deep tech with 2017 because I was listening to all these VCs and they were like, you know, well, we don't do hardware and software has great margins and, it, you know, hardware's harder and more expensive and it takes longer and it's riskier. And I was like, oh, yeah, yeah. Amazing advice writing this down. And like one of my best investments, Solugen, is a deep tech company. And I saw it, you know, nine months before I ended up investing and I didn't invest in the pre-seed because I wasn't investing in hardware at the time, if that gives you some context. Um, and then I just, I learned about where alpha comes from. And if you were going to derive returns, you have to go where others aren't fishing. Like game theory is, is real. And so if 95% of VCs were categorically saying they weren't investing in hardware and bio, then all of a sudden it dawned on me, I was like, wait, that might be the best place to invest. It's like mm -hmm. cheating if you can figure out how to do it. Let me give you another question then. Today, right now, May 2023, you had to start a brand new fund today. What would be the alpha of that strategy? Oh, I, I still think it's early stage deep tech. Um, and it's gotten more popular, but I actually don't think most people understand how to do it. 
And I say that because I've been doing it wrong a lot of the time. And like, I'm still learning by doing, but there are a lot of folks that go into deep tech investing and they think that you can just rotely apply all the lessons that you learn from software. And there are some that apply, but there's a lot that don't. And one of the reasons that we don't, don't categorically invest in pure software anymore is because it's totally different to predominantly take technical risk versus market risk. There's a lot that changes. Um, and I, and I became convinced at a certain point that if we tried to do both, we'd be at best okay at one of them. Like I want to be one of the best in the world, if not the best firm in the world for early stage hardware and bio founders to come to. And to do that is going to require focus. And so people look at me like I'm crazy when I say we don't invest in software. Like my greatest mentor who's been in venture capital for 50 years and started when you were mostly investing in hardware, you know, he's getting old and kind of forgets that I, I focus on this now. And when I remind him, we, we don't do software anymore. He looks like I slapped him and it's like, well, that's stupid, <laughs> but you kind of have to be doing things that, that most people think are stupid. If you want to like produce generational returns. And in terms of deep tech, right. I know, I know that you have some advisors to the company um, sort of listed on the site. Um, and you've got a team now that you've built uh, over time with, the, as you've added funds, but how can you diligence so many different areas so off? I mean, it's, it's not like, Oh, well I get SAS, right? It's every one of the deals you've done seems like it needs a different level, expert to have come in and help you. So, yeah. there. So we, we have um, 10, 11 advisors who are technical founders that I backed in funds one and two who are advisors to fund three. So there's no conflict there. Um, and importantly, they are technical entrepreneurs. A trap that you can get yourselves in is if you act, ask quote unquote experts to do technical diligence for you, there's two things that are happening. One is that experts are definitionally trained on the status quo when the biggest companies profoundly challenge the status quo. And so there's a dissonance there where like, they're going to probably tell you that it's not going to work or dumb or whatever. Um, the other thing is that, again, going back to the probabilistic nature of this asset class, you're dealing with high variance, low probability outcomes, whereas PhDs are trained thoroughly to like nitpick every detail and find every little thing that could go wrong and tell you why it won't work. And, and their job is essentially to point out the, you know, the fact that it's unlikely to work, generally speaking. I know it won't work. Don't tell me that. Like, let, let, help me figure out, is there a violation of physics that's going on? Like, you know, is it theoretically possible? Sometimes I'll stipulate. No, I won't ask them, what do you think about this? Or do you think it's going to work? Or do you think this is, God forbid, do you think this is good investment? Don't list. They're scientists. They're not investors. Yeah. I want to know, like, what flaw is there in their rationale? Like, is this theoretically possible? Because yeah. we're dealing, again, with, like, single digit probabilities, which they're not trained on. So you kind of have to reframe it. And then once we know that there's no violation of physics, I'm like, all right, get out of here. We're going to go talk to him about the business because the other trap in deep tech, especially, and I see a lot of my peers doing this, and I was tempted to do this for a time because I had a lot of insecurity about having a bachelor's in political science and figuring out deep tech is to pad the partnership with PhDs. And they can help you in their areas of domain if they like get themselves out of that academic risk averse training, but the 
fundamental thing that we are investing in is businesses. We don't invest in technology. We invest in businesses and technology can be a means to that end, but they are a means. And to treat technology as though it is in itself inherently valuable, and I'm speaking from an economic perspective, is idiotic. Like, I actually don't care that much about IP. You got to know, is a business going to work? And that is more about the leadership, the market, the unit economics, the sustainable competitive advantage that you can build over time, which all might be predicated on the technology, but it's like a thin slice that all the value sits on top of. How how quickly does it take you now, and maybe did it take you then, to understand the founder in a way that you earned the trust or you realized that you didn't want to work with them? Like founder evaluation. Like they have to be technically competent. They have to be an incredible leader, the ability to inspire and manage others and have a, a like talent gravity. If, if success is obviously a multivariable equation, but if you force me to index only on one variable, I would say gravitas like, or, or talent gravity is maybe a way to put that. Can they recruit and retain the best talent out there? Can they attract partners and talent and customers um, in a way that is itself differentiated because startups always get hard. There has to be some like pathological drive or near pathological drive behind them. And again, going back to like studying the best, Mike Moritz would say sometimes that, or, or allegedly he would stop founders sometimes in the pitch and say, all right, let's stop talking about the business. I want to know what happened to you before you turned 17 that formed your psyche. It was like, you got, you got to go deep with them and really understand what drives them, what's, what gets them out of bed in the morning. And I think I understand this better as I have come to understand my own reasons, um, which are like rooted in childhood and near pathological in their nature. Um, specifically, I, I lost my dad when I was really young and facing mortality at that age imprints a hard deadline in your psyche that like is hard to ignore. And I think about my death regularly, <laughs> probably more than is healthy. Um, but it has a way of clarifying things. Like I, I only have so much time and I have to focus and I'm determined to be part of something that I'm proud of on my deathbed when I'm on my way out. Um, and so something like that, knowing that about myself, I kind of look for whatever it is in the founder. And if I don't understand why they are doing this, at its most basic level, then like they're just another entrepreneur that like heard raising money was easy and they're probably going to quit. And they're certainly not going to build a 10 to $100 billion company that changes the world. And I'll put on my epitaph. Let's jump in a little bit more on some advice to founders right now. So uh, first of all, where do you see the market in funding for your companies? Um, many of them are probably, some of them just raised actually, I saw Radiant. Um, What's what's happening in the market? Maybe May 2023. That's different than December 2022. Yeah, I mean, it's been hard for a while. I think the difference is, like, if if you talk to the founders, they're like VCs are investing right now. If you talk to the investors, they're like prices are too high. And like, if if that's the detente, that it isn't that there's not money there. It's that there's 
the bid ask spread is too wide, then like, and one side, the founders have limited runway and we, the investors have management fees for a decade. Guess who wins in a like duration battle? So all that needs to happen is founders need to realize that like prices have retraded. And once that clearing price is found a lot lower than it was a year ago, liquidity will open back up. And so if you're a founder listening to this and you're, you're like frustrated that VCs aren't investing right now, know that the, they will if you lower your valuation. But no one wants to do that because it kind of, you know, their friends tell them down rounds are evil. And I don't know. I think just the, the people aren't going to have the luxury of waiting. Everyone's been sort of, you know, entrepreneurs are like, well, I'm not going to raise because, you know, I just need to wait and then Zerp will come back. Like it's not coming back in, I would be willing to bet a lot the next decade. And I'd be willing to bet a little that like, we won't go back to zero rate interest environments in my lifetime. And I'm 35. Like that was an unprecedented capital abundant environment that is never coming back. Get that into your head now and adjust for it. I'm sorry. I wish it was. I wish we had been some big exits. We didn't. Um, but, you know, prices have come down. Build value with the clearing price that you can achieve today and don't overfocus on valuation because you'll run yourself right off a cliff. Yeah, it makes sense. And then what do you see for the rest? Like, when do you see, let's just say, look, moving forward in terms of the market uh, for founders and the areas that you're going after, do you see anything that's, there are any particular milestones of inflection coming up? So, for example, we know about the interest rates changing. We know about Biden's Inflation Reduction Act. Uh, mm -hmm. Sort of these are moments. Do you see any of those coming up that you're guiding your founders towards or they're guiding you towards as moments that are either going to be positive or potentially disruptive? The IRA is a big deal. There's a lot of tailwinds there. Um, but that's such a consensus view as to start to make me nervous. I actually think that there's like there are aspects of that bill that were impressively bipartisan, sort of like thematically Democrat, but geographically Republican, which I think is a nice compromise. You see a lot of the money going to red states and rural areas. Um, and so there are going to be certain things that are going to be hard to roll back. But should the Republicans win the White House next year, which I think is probably likely at this point, um, not that I enjoy making that prediction, they're going to come for parts of the IRA. Like you betcha. You already see them making such noise about, you know, coming after ESG. Um, they're going to come for some of the subsidies. Like I am convinced of it. And so I don't know that the IRA is uh, infinitely reliable. There's aspects of it that are like the 45 Q point source capture is a good example because um, that credit is essentially meant for fossil fuel burning plants. So oil and gas industry loves that. They're, they're getting incentivized to, you know, add some contraptions and capture CO2. Um, so that, you know, Republicans might make noise about it, but that sort of thing, they're not going to roll back. Subsidies are really hard to take away. Look at the ethanol subsidy. Um, but I don't know. I think there's going to be certain incentives that, that they come for that I wouldn't want to underwrite to. 
Yeah. Um, cause that might be a negative one, uh, you know, a positive one on, we, we do some stuff in sort of dual use defense tech aerospace and, you know, the Putin's war in Ukraine has reminded us that maybe we do need a military and advanced military technologies and offensive technologies are often the best way to deter conflict, um, as counterintuitive as that can seem. And so there's a lot of emphasis on technology into our armed forces and getting the best technology in the hands of the warfighter or the potential warfighter. Um, and so those are major tailwinds and are relatively bipartisan now, or I don't know, it's kind of funny. It's flipped. The Democrats seem to be more, you know, pro Ukraine than the Republicans do, but um, it's still, you know, investing in, in defense technology is relatively bipartisan. So it kind of depends on the area. And it's a reason I'm glad that we don't focus on any one of these areas. We can kind of tack and turn depending on the environment. Makes sense. Well, today's been amazing. Ian, um, we could talk for another hour, but as we sure. wind it down, um, first of all, I want to thank you for your time today. Um, and Totally. I love this stuff. I've, I've learned a lot the hard way. So I like, uh, you know, helping other people avoid some of my mistakes, hopefully. What, what's like bullshit right now? What's like, what's th things that you sh people should be worried about from a founder perspective, from a venture perspective, from a industry watcher perspective? I feel like there's a lot of people that are, that are like idealists out there. And like, I don't know, we, we've got a portfolio company, for instance, that's like decarbonizing an industrial process by 85%. And this is one of the most CO2 emitting industries on the planet. And there's a lot of climate tech firms out there that are like, mm, can't invest. It's not a hundred. And I'm like, what are you smoking? Like, did you hear what we just said? Like 85% reduction in CO2 emissions. And like, we'll get to a hundred, but we can't do it economically viably in the next five, six, seven years. Like we'll get there. And they're just like, oh, sorry. Got to be a hundred. You got to use hydrogen today, even though it's way too expensive. Like it's just... I just make, I want to pull my hair out that they're like so idealist that they're going to like have us emit more CO2 because less isn't good enough. Ah, just gets me heated. Yeah, it's a great one. I also see that like there seems to be a lot of innovation coming to making the oil and gas industry run in a more clean way. And that's completely poo-pooed by a lot of investors and funds mm -hmm. that are just like, hey, it's either kill them or die trying. Um, I don't know if you see that. It just seems like another odd part of the, of the climate. Yeah, totally. Or people that are like, you know, we have, we have a investment in using AI and some automation for metals exploration. And they're like, oh, well, like, you know, mining tailings are, are bad. And like, it has a local environmental footprint. I'm like, where the heck do you think the battery in your phone and car came from? Like, get out of here. Like we can't just magically pull all the lithium and copper we need for the energy transition out of seawater tomorrow. Like there have to be transitionary technologies. And like, if you really understand the scale of the problem, you're going to realize we need to pull more metal out of the ground faster. And yes, we need to be conscious of native populations and local environments. And like, ideally you, you do this in a way that isn't leaving toxic tailings all over the place. There's ways to improve the status quo, but like, Saying we're all we're gonna pull it all out of the water soon enough to matter is just completely idiotic. 
what's sort of a narrative that's happening right now that you're seeing, at least in the press or maybe on social media, that you just think is completely over-indexed uh, in terms of like, you know, reality versus perception? Fusion energy. I've looked at a lot of fusion companies and I've, and I've followed some of them for over a decade. And the, the scientific advancements are so impressive and laudable. And we should be investing in, I believe in investing in basic research. Absolutely. Um, I hope Cantos makes enough money someday that we can like, you know, say we're going to give 10% or more of it to funding basic research. I think it's so important, but we're getting to the point that like, we need to decarbonize ASAP if we want any, ch- I mean, we're, one and a half degrees is gone. Like we need to get that out of our minds. It's, it's sorry, it's too late. We, we screwed the pooch on that one. Like if we want any shot at keeping temperature rise to under two, two uh, degrees, then we need to decarbonize as quickly as possible and a technology that's likely not going to be commercial for, I think, still 15 to 20 years is dead on arrival. It's just not going to help in a timescale that matters. I'm sorry. Like, I, I wish that wasn't the case, but like, that's the reality. And yes, the science might get there, but then you need to like make it commercially viable. And we talk about commercially, you know, everyone talks about Q greater than one and net energy gain is like this big thing. And like, NIF kind of like technically got there, but it was the amount of plasma that your amount of energy that came out of the plasma minus the amount of energy that went into the plasma in fine print at the bottom was like 50 times, a hundred times more energy went into the facility than made it into the plasma. And then you need to transfer that thermal energy into electric electricity, which is at best 50% efficient. So like we're ta- we're saying we're a hundred to two hundred times away from commercially viable Q values, and like it's not getting to Q greater than one theoretically. It's like actual facility level Q values of like greater than ten is probably what you need, and that not to mention then getting approval and building enough of these plants to matter. That scale is. I think 20, 25 years away. Hmm. And so it's just not going to matter. Like, sorry, we should invest in it. But so much money has gone into it. I think it's been actually a distraction for nearer term solutions. And call me crazy, but I think, you know, we should just be using uranium. And there's a lot of ways to use it better, to recycle it, to have less waste, to get more energy out of it, to make the footprint smaller. And that technology could bring online next year if we wanted to. We just need the political will. And I think that's changing. But if you want to decarbonize the grid fast enough to matter, you got to invest in fission. There's no other way. It's not to say we don't need solar and wind plus storage. Combining those two gets you a lot of the way there too. We need all of it. But I think fusion is getting to the point. It's a distraction. Excellent. Thank you for the time today, Ian. Cantos.vc. Check out Ian on Twitter as well and other places and uh we'll be uh back next week with more well that's all for this week's episode of climb by vsc thank you so much for watching and listening special thanks to credo for their help in producing and promoting this episode to visit any part of today's conversation again you can find the full transcript on vscventures.com 
Our thanks to Josue Romero for posting these every week. Lastly, if you've listened this far, please leave us a rating on Spotify or review on iTunes. It only takes a few seconds, really helps us out, and as far as I know, it's still carbon neutral. Well, that's all for now. We'll see you all next week on Climb by VSC.